Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is the word of the Lord. The theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, What then do we do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such time that God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure, endure them unwillingly. So today we are in the third part of our series titled Waiting on God. And in the first week we talked about waiting on that waiting is not something that we like just by our nature, but we, uh, because we hate to wait. We don't want to wait for anything. And it doesn't matter if you're male or female or single or young or, or not quite so young. <laughs> we don't want to wait for God for food. We don't, excuse me, we don't want to wait for our food. We don't want to wait for Christmas to open presents. We don't want to wait until the games start today. And I know some of, some of your minds might be there at this moment. In fact, some of you are probably thinking, Pastor, please don't go along today. <laughs> we don't want to wait. And kids, they don't want to wait to be grown-ups so they don't have to take a nap. And grown-ups don't want to wait until they can go home and take a nap. We don't want to wait for a tax refund. We don't want to wait to buy that car. We don't want to wait until we can get that new outfit so we put it on our credit card. We don't want to wait for anything, including God. I mean, let's be honest. When we pray about something in our life, we want God to move right now. We want him to act in the moment. We want him to solve our problems right away. But the truth is, as we talked about in the first week, is we were created by God to wait on him. And then last week, we talked about how we wait on God when life changes. Because if there's a constant in our lives, is the fact that everything changes. As we, we talked about how we are not only created to wait on God, but actually waiting on God to move when life changes ultimately is what's best for us. Well, today we're going to talk about probably the most challenging facet of waiting on God, the spiritual discipline of waiting on God, and that is waiting on him when things in our life are very hard. Because the truth is, if there is anything that is certain as change, is the fact that we are going to face difficult and painful circumstances in our lives. All of us, without exception, have been through and will continue to go through times of 
deep pain and trouble, sometimes unbearable sorrow and agonizing difficulty. All of us have lost loved ones. We have all been affected by cancer in some fashion. We've all been set back in our lives where it hurt. We have all known financial stress. Our hearts have been broken. We have been betrayed by people that we trust. And we ourselves have betrayed the trust of others. All of us have failed miserably at something, and we all have done things that we deeply regret. And we've all endured incredibly difficult times in our lives. And it doesn't matter who you are, young or old, married or single, rich, poor, Christian or unbeliever, everyone endures times of suffering. And and so if there is any reason for you to have compassion for your neighbor, even the ones that you don't like, is the fact that you know what it's like to go through hard times and you know that they go through their share as well. Because we have all been there and the truth is, is we are all going there if we're already not there. Because I know someone, I know some of you right now are probably in the middle of something difficult. And some of you have probably just gotten out of something really difficult. And some of you, whether you know it or not, have difficulty on the horizon. I once heard it said that either you're, you're in a hard place in life right now, or you just came out of a hard place, or you are headed into a hard place. We all go there, and we all of us experience our share of painful times. And I would argue that it's in those times that many of us find it especially hard to wait for God. It's in those times that we get so upset and frustrated because we wonder what God is doing. Sometimes we even wonder, is God even there? In fact, we may even ask the question, where are you, God? Or why me, Lord? Why do I have to endure this? And maybe you even get to the really personal questions where you start searching, are you, are you punishing me, Lord? Have you abandoned me? Have I just done something wrong in my life? These are the kinds of questions we wrestle with and we find ourselves in those periods of life where we just simply don't know what the answers are and sometimes it just doesn't make any sense to us. But I want you to understand these are normal questions that we ask when everything seems wrong. But then we wonder, what does that mean for our theology or understanding of God? I mean, if God is completely sovereign and, and, and I'm completely dependent upon him, then he is ultimately allowing me to go through this. He's allowing me to suffer. He's allowed these things to happen in my life, if not even ordained them to happen. What does that then mean about God? Is he just being mean to me? <laughs> is God not as good as I thought that he was? Is he really not in control? Is he really not all-knowing? Maybe I've misunderstood God. Maybe other people, you know, are right that, that theology doesn't matter. Maybe I'm just completely wrong. Maybe my understanding of him is all messed up. Maybe he doesn't even exist. Or maybe he just doesn't care. We've all been there. And I want you to understand, first of all, God is never offended by your weakness or your doubts. 
We all ask these kinds of questions. Where is God in our pain? Why does he make us wait? Our understanding of God is challenged, I would say, the most when we experience pain in our lives. But let me tell you, it's also those times like this that those who build their life and their theology around the prosperity gospel are in particular trouble. Because if you happen, because what happens in times like this when your theology about God says, trust Jesus and your life is going to magically get better. If you will just have enough faith, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. What then? What happens in times of deep pain when you come to Christ so he can help you, right, to live your best life now and it doesn't happen? What happens when you want him to prosper you and it doesn't go according to plan? What happens when you pray, the cancer, but the cancer doesn't go away? What happens when, when you believe with all your heart, but your mom still dies? What happens when you're believing in a miracle to happen and you come to understand you're just going to have to live with the pain the rest of your life? What happens then? What happens when, to your faith when you're trusting in Jesus to, to bring about prosperity and he doesn't do it for you? Well, let me tell you, the Bible doesn't talk about that kind of a Jesus. In fact, when you look in the book of John, Jesus promised something else. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. And I want you to understand that he didn't say that you may have tribulation or that you could probably face tribulation. He said you will have tribulation. You will experience suffering in hard times in this side of heaven. Suffering is a part of this life. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's telling us, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when things get hard if, if, as if it were something that, that, that were alien in this world. Suffering is a part of this life, especially if you're a Christian. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Suffering and pain is, is simply a part of the deal. So how do you reconcile then the prosperity gospel against that? Well, the truth is you cannot do it, despite what all the rich false teachers will say in all of their books and all of their videos and all their money grabbing. But then how do you reconcile our understanding of God and his sovereignty when things get hard? Because either he allows our suffering or he ordains it. And if God is sovereign and in control and allows our suffering to happen or ordains it for it to happen, right? What then? Because I'm going to admit on, on the surface, that's really hard to swallow. But hear me. We don't believe the things we believe about God based on our feelings in the moment. We believe what we believe because of what his word says about him. And, and the Bible tells us that God is in control. And it tells us that he, we are dependent upon him. And it tells us that, that we will suffer in this life. Which then leaves us with some questions. Why? Why must we suffer? And why must we wait on the Lord in our suffering. 
Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Why do we have to wait on God when life is hard? In the book of John, there is a story that I think happens to help us to wrap our heads around these, these questions. In the story of Lazarus, as you're probably familiar with, we see an incredible story what God has done. So turn with me to John chapter 11, and we're going to begin again in verse 1. And it reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary where her sister, the, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. One of the things that we need to understand right up front is the fact that everything that God does and ordains, he does for his own glory. One of the Latin phrases that I hold dear to my heart, and it's one of the plaques on the, on the back wall that Brother Robert was so kind to make for us, is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. God created the universe and everything in it for his glory. He sent Christ to die on the cross on our behalf and rescue us for his glory. And the truth is we are allowed to suffer and to struggle in difficult times for God's glory. Everything that God does and permits ultimately glorifies him. Look what Jesus says. It's right there in black and white on the pages. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's a very sobering set of words. Lazarus' suffering and illness was ordained by God to glorify God. God allowed it so Jesus could be glorified. That's what it says. And it's not confusing. Now, many of us will push back against this and say, well, that's just not right. That's not fair. It doesn't make sense. In fact, this is something that offends some people. But there it is in the text, the inerrant, infallible word of God. Lazarus is suffering for the Lazarus is suffering for the glory of God, and it happened so that Christ could be glorified, which exposes a, a brutal truth beyond that. A truth I think that we have to grapple with, and that is the fact that God is in some way glorified in our suffering. And and I know there are times that that thought is not going to neatly fit into the confines of your head. There is something in us that wants to reject that out of hand. But that is where we are theologically. God is in control, which means everything happens by his will and nothing is outside of his control. And everything that God does, he does for his own glory, which means he allowed you to suffer, to struggle and go through your hard times. But more than that, it's ultimately for your own good. Try that one on for size. Your suffering ultimately works for your own good. But most importantly, for his glory. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we embrace that, the better prepared we are 
so that we can worship God as we wait for him in our pain. Because that's what we are all called to do. We are called to worship God in our pain. And if you don't believe that, then you haven't read the book of Job. Because that's exactly what the story is about. Job was a very rich man, and God had blessed him, and he was walking with God. He didn't do anything wrong. Right? And the devil comes to God and tells God, Job is only good and he only does what you want him to do is because you're blessing him. Right? If, if Job suffered, he would curse you to your face. And so in a strange turn of events, God allowed Satan to inflict suffering on Job. Right? Make no mistake, God allowed it to happen. And, and in one day, Job lost everything. He lost all of his animals. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his children. And even lost his health. He was afflicted with painful sores all over his body. It was a pitiful sight. And the thing that we wrestle with is the fact that God allowed it to happen. But how does Job react to this? Well, let's look at Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. Worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I sh shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And the most stunning statement that I could imagine being uttered out of, the, out of the mouth of a human being, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. We have sung that song so many times in this church. This is where actually the, those lyrics come from. When Job suffered catastrophic loss at the hands of Satan, who, who was allowed to do so by God, Job worshipped God in his pain and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of Job's suffering, he knew that God was in control. He knew that God allowed it to happen. And he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knew the truth. Job was able to worship God in his suffering. You see, Job worshipped in his suffering because he had a true understanding of who God is. He had a deep theology of God. He knew that God was in control. He knew that God was all-powerful and that he created all things and he was all-knowing and that he would be glorified in his suffering. And so in the midst of his agony, he trusted God and worshipped him. Let me tell you, if we understand who God is, if we really understand how magnificent and holy he is, we would do the same thing. In fact, the lyrics that we have sung so many times, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. And the reason why we have sung that song so many times is because it expresses the truth about God and who we are. But the question is, do we really believe that? When I was a very new Christian, I went to a men's conference and uh, I was in one of the breakout sessions. In, and in this one session, it was led by a man who was talking about family and leaving a legacy, especially as fathers for our children. But before he really gets into that, he tells us, 
his story so we can understand who he is and his perspective and where he was coming from. And he tells us this story about the love of his life. He had met this young woman in college, Bible college and they, they were in love and they finished school and got married and went into ministry together and they had three kids and life was just absolutely amazing. And they were there, two people sold out for Jesus, working for the Lord with their family, sacrificing. And it seemed like God was blessing everything they did at every possible term. And they were living their Christian dream. But then the diagnosis came for his wife. She had cancer and it was very aggressive. But then, but with the surgery and with chemo and radiation, there was a chance that she might actually survive. And they were believing and they were praying to God that he would work a miracle to heal her. But he said, I was not prepared. I was not prepared for the suffering that my wife had to endure. The pain of the surgery and its recovery, the horrific effects on her body from the radiation, and then the endless nausea that seemed to come from the chemotherapy. He watched his wife suffer terribly for months and months on end, and she wasn't getting any better. And one night he was trying to sleep, and he was awakened to hear his wife in the bathroom once again, sick to her stomach, throwing up. And he said that she sounded so weak and and in pain. In fact, he said she sounded like a, a wounded animal in the bathroom. And in that moment of grief for his wife, he turned to God and says, why? Why does she have to suffer like this? Where are you, God? Don't you know that we love you? Can't you see that we live for you? Why, Lord, would you do this to us? Why would you do this to me? And then he said, as I'm complaining to God, I hear my wife in the bathroom saying something, and I realize that she's praying. And in her pain... And in her weakness, she was praying to God. And what she said was, not woe is me or why, Lord. She was saying, Lord, if you can be glorified in this, then be glorified. How can she say something like that? How can she worship God in the midst of her agony? How is that even possible? It was possible because she understood who God is and she understand who she was in light of that. And she understood that there was more to the story of Lazarus than suffering. There was a point to it all. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he says that this is for the glory of God. And then notice what he says next in verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed where he was two days longer. Now, I would not expect for that to be what he, what he would do. I mean, if he loved them, then why not all of a sudden run all the way there? We would expect that he left the very minute. He, that he jumped on the, the first donkey headed that way, right? That, he, that he, would, he would rush to be at their side. 
That's what we would do. It says that he loved them, so he didn't leave right away. He stayed where he was. Now, what if that were you or me? If someone called you and said your friend or family member is in the hospital and they're really bad off, do you wait two days to go to them? Or do you even wait two hours? No. Why does Jesus wait? Well, the answer is right there in the text. It says, because he loves them. He loves them, so he stayed where he was. Jesus made them wait because he loves them. And this is another truth that's hard for us at times, but it's a truth we have to come to terms with, that God making us wait on him in our pain is because he loves us. God allowing us to suffer for a period of time is, is, is because of his love for us. Now, this is another idea that I want you, I, I submit, I understand, won't neatly fit within the confines of our imagination, but there it is again in the text. God will allow us to suffer because he loves us. How does that make any sense? Well, let me ask a bigger question. How does it make any sense that a God who created the entire universe over 92 billion light years across in which you were not even a speck that can be seen, even worse, who is a rebel against him? Why would a God so powerful and so magnificent and holy even care about who you are? Yet the Bible tells us that every hair on your head is is numbered. Some of you have a few more than I do, but... But why would God care about the likeness of you or me? You see, it comes to, when it comes to questions like this, oftentimes we have to go to the Word and appeal to what God Himself said to Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The truth is God is bigger than the limitations of your imagination and you and I are not fully able to understand God's ways this side of eternity. We're not going to be able to answer all of the questions. God is infinite. We are finite. We're, going to, we're not going to be able to fully grab a hold of the question why. But there it is on the page of truth that there are just times in our pain God makes us wait because he loves us which means there is reason for our pain. There's reason for our suffering. There are reasons for our trials. The thing that we need to realize is God has something he is doing with that, which brings me to a verse that I have made my life verse. It's Romans 8.28. You've heard me quote this before many times, but maybe you can hear it again with fresh ears. Paul says, and we know for a fact, we know that those, for those who love God, all things, even the worst of things, even your pain, work together for good for those who, are, who, are called, who love God and called according to his purpose. This is why we go there. Right? So we can trust what God is doing. He is in control and he does everything he does for his glory. He allows our suffering. He makes us wait on us because he loves us, and all of these things work together for our good for those of us who 
trust him and love him. That's why, that is what we know about God and that's what we know about the truth. So what are we called to do then? We are called to turn to God and trust him and worship him and glorify him in our pain. That's what we're to do. You see, it's easy to follow God when everything's good. It is easy to say amen when everything's going your way. It's easy to say praise the Lord when the sun is shining. But when things get hard, that's when we really see, are we truly trusting in him? Are we truly depending on him? Is he truly our treasure or is something else our treasure? Well, the story continues and Jesus tells his disciples that that they're going to Jerusalem and Lazarus is no longer sick, but he is dead. And Jesus says the craziest, most unexpected thing to them. He says in verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. What? Lazarus was not only suffered, but he died. And Jesus said, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I was not there to heal him. I was glad I was not there to take away the pain. I'm glad I wasn't there to keep keep his sisters from grieving. He says, I'm for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. And then he says, so that you may believe. Understand what this means. Jesus going to Lazarus and his sister's suffering, not only to glorify himself, but he was going there to use this pain for an even greater good. Jesus was going to use the suffering and death of Lazarus to achieve something for, the, for his followers, for the faith of his followers. You see, another thing that we have to come to terms with in our, is that in our suffering, We don't always see the big picture. We can't see all of the ends. We don't see how God is working things out. How many times in your life have you looked around and thought, this is horrible, and then you get some distance from it and you realize that was exactly what needed to happen? Or how many of you who are parents when you're trying to explain difficult things to your children and they're looking at you like, I don't get it, and all they can do is just simply turn to you and trust in you? We don't always see how things work out. When we suffer and we think it's just about us, but oftentimes it's more than that. When my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal her. And believe me, I have prayed at times for people and God had healed them. I've always believed in the power of prayer, but my mom didn't get any better. And at times I would wonder, Lord, why? Even at times I thought it was my fault because maybe I wasn't praying hard enough because I still had a little that influenced the prosperity gospel in my life. But the hours before she had passed away, my mom wanted me and my wife to pray for her one more time. And she had expressed to my wife, Kim, that she was not afraid to die and that she was trusting in Christ as her Savior. And the thing that you need to realize is before the cancer diagnosis, my parents were not walking with God and my parents did not want to hear it from me. They didn't want to hear me preach. They didn't want me to talk about the gospel. But it was her suffering that actually drew her and my dad 
into a personal relationship with Christ. And that's when I realized that, that to God, salvation is so much more important than our comfort. That's why the prosperity gospel fails. Because it, it does not see the true purpose and the plan of God. God's plan for you is not to be always comfortable. God's plan is not for you to always live a life without pain. God's plan for you is to be redeemed and saved from the sin that's killing you and from the wrath of God that you deserve. His plan is to redeem you and redeem others through you. God's plan is not for your life to be perfect this side of heaven. God's plan is for your life to be fruitful for the gospel and his glory. God's plan is not for you to be rich in material things, but to be rich in grace and mercy. Your suffering always has a purpose. It's just, we don't always get to see it where we're standing. And that's why we have to trust Him and worship Him and glorify Him when things are hard, knowing and trusting and believing that He is good and that He is working all things out for our good. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last days. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And one of the the things that you have to understand is that Mary trusted Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah. But she did not understand in the moment what Jesus had just told her. He told her that he would raise Lazarus and he went and that went right over her head. She was like, I know that you're going to raise him on the last day. But she didn't understand that Jesus was going to raise him that very day. She didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And this brings up another important point. Oftentimes, even if God were to explain to us what was happening and why we were suffering while we're in the midst of our pain, we probably still wouldn't even understand it in the moment. Just like Martha, he explained to her But she didn't understand. And oftentimes we're just like that. We might ask why, when in reality, we wouldn't even be able to understand in the moment anyway. You see, in our suffering, it's not about our understanding. It is about our trusting in God's sovereignty and goodness the way that Martha did. She trusted Jesus with Messiah and that he would eventually raise Lazarus on the last day. She trusted Jesus would work things out eventually. And then in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, echoing her sister's words. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And then the very shortest verse in the entire Bible, but perhaps one of the most profound, it says, Jesus wept. Now you have to understand the context here because the preceding phrase about him being deeply moved actually in Greek comes from the idea of a horse snorting, right? It's the, that's what kind of came out of Jesus. He was physically and emotionally moved in his humanity. It says that he was deeply moved and troubled, and the Greek conveys the idea of a physical reaction, and the idea here is it wasn't like a little tear slipped down his cheek. He cried. It says that he was troubled and he cried. Not a picture that we often think about when we think about Jesus, but that's the picture being painted here. And this is important for us to understand because God may allow or even ordain our suffering and he may be glorified in our suffering, but he takes no pleasure in our suffering. This is the most, I think, important thing that we need to understand here. God is in control and nothing happens outside of his will. And he does everything he does for his glory, which means he allows and ordains our pain so that he can be glorified, but he takes no pleasure in your suffering. God does not rejoice in your pain. God does not feel happy when you go through hard times, even when he's glorified. Even for those who hate him. In fact, it says in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live? In other words, do you think that I derive pleasure that wicked people die and are tormented? Of course not. I want them to turn and live. Think about that. What would actually glorify God more than those who rebel against him to get what they deserve? You go to court and somebody who has done something heinous to a family, we want justice. What would glorify God more than justice to be served? What would bring him more glory than for his righteous and holy character to be vindicated by his justice? But here it says he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, for he desires for them to live. God does not take pleasure in your pain, and he grieves over it. Jesus wept over it. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, this is by this time there will be an odor, for he had been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Father, I thank you 
that you've heard me. I, kn- I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. You see, God used this great tragedy and he used the suffering of Lazarus and his sisters in a way that glorified God and worked for the greatest good possible because people believed in Jesus who were saved as a result. And that's what we have to hold on to when we suffer. That's what we have to hold on to when life goes sideways. In fact, that God is sovereign and the fact that he is at work will not waste our hurts. Instead, we'll work things out for the greatest good and his glory. But then there's one more thing that I think that we need to see in this story. And it said that many Jews believed and some went and told the Pharisees what he did. And then in verse 47, some of the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone who believes in him and... And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not, he did not say this of his own accord, but, he, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the to one children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, not only did Lazarus suffering and death bring about glory to God, and did he did God use it to save people? This event that brought joy ultimately led to the death of Christ. You see, he was a safe distance from Jerusalem before all this happened. And this event brought him all of the wrong kinds of attention. The fact is when Jesus decided to go to Lazarus, he had knowingly sealed his own fate. That he had wrote his own death warrant because there was no escape now. And shortly after this, instead of running and hiding, this is the time where Jesus embraced his own suffering. And was and he came and he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey like a conquering king. And soon after, Jesus was arrested, and he was beaten beyond recognition, and he was crucified on the cross where he suffered slow, a painful, agonizing, torturous death, a death that was ordained for him by his father. And just before Jesus died, Jesus, in his humanity, experienced what we experienced. He experienced separation from the Father, something that he had never known since his birth, something that had never even he'd ever experienced. And he cried out with agony and a broken heart, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ, the spotless lamb, suffered and was forsaken by the Father and died on the cross because God ordained it, God was glorified by it, and God used it for the greatest possible good. In fact, he used it for your own good. Christ was suffering and he was forsaken on the cross so that we would never be forsaken in any part of our lives, even when it's hard. God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. No matter what happens to you on this earth, even when we have to wait for him. And so what do we do with this knowledge? Well, first of all, if you're not in Christ, right, the best that you can live for is this life and this life only, and you will experience your own share of trouble like the rest of us but your trouble won't make any sense in any universe. And ultimately, all you have to look forward to is the best this life has to offer. But for those who put their faith in Christ, they can have the assurance today that God will never leave them or forsake them, that God will be with them and strengthen them and lead them and and guide them in all holiness. But most importantly, he will see them completely safely home that there will come a time when Christ returns and makes all things new and that we will stand forever in eternity in the presence of the King who loved us. And so today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith in Christ. The, The second thing is, we are a family here. And I can't emphasize that enough. I say these words, but I, they have to come home all the way in. We are a family here. We are the family of God. We were adopted together and the relationship that we have with one another is greater than you can possibly imagine. And we are here for you. And so if you are struggling, if you are suffering, if you are going through trials, don't go it alone. Your brothers and sisters in Christ love to pray for you. They love to help. They love to come alongside you and walk with you and help you through these times. If you're struggling, today's the day to connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the deacons in the church, the, the different leaders in the church, and your, all the brothers and sisters in here, and just get the prayer that you need. And then, Third is rest. And when the sun is shining or when the darkness comes, what Christ has done for you has already been accomplished and you are secure in what God has done for you. The gospel isn't, okay, do something and so God will love you. The gospel is Christ did it all. Now turn to him in faith and rest in that. And then finally, This is the only hope there is for the world. Yes, we'll feed some people out there and momentarily their bellies will be full. We might give some people some clothes and they'll be warm for a little while. We might even be able to help somebody out get some gas, get them down the road, but that tank will run out again, right? Whatever we do to help people physically ultimately is short term. The real hope that anyone has is what God has done for them. And it's it's only at that time will what they go through Even in the darkest moments, will it make sense? Help, let us be the church that goes out and rescues the lost. Let us be the ones who shares the hope of Christ with our neighbors and friends. 
And let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word and the comfort that it brings, even in the darkest of moments in our lives. And I pray, Lord God, that we be encouraged to know that we are not alone. In fact, that those who have trust in you, your spirit resides within us. And that we are never, ever, ever away from the throne room of grace. We just simply need to turn to you and say, Abba, Father. And that, Father, you have promised that all things work together for our good, even when we can't see it in the moment. And you have promised to see us safely home. Father, strengthen us, Lord God, for the trials that we are going through. Strengthen You've been us listening the to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, and all production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our, our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ pray, Lord God, with our community church and our world. You in all that we say and do. Be glorified today, Lord. Be glorified in all that we do. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, that being said, brothers and sisters, actually, let's, let's pray for the food so you're not waiting on me. All right? <laughs> Father, we thank you for the time of fellowship that we're about to have. We pray that you bless the food and the hands that made it. And I pray, Father God, that we would just rejoice in your goodness uh, as we spend time together. Be magnified today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are free.